Hello and welcome to the Allplane podcast where we talk with interesting people that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. But first of all, and before I introduce today's guests, because today we have two guests, not just one, let me remind you that you can find all the previous episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories on our website, allplane.tv. That's A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E dot TV. Today we're going to talk about a topic that is appearing on this podcast as well as in the media in general with increasing frequency and that's the absolutely fascinating world of advanced air mobility what some media like to call flying taxis or flying cars although there's a lot more than that there is a wave of innovation that is coming from that corner of the aviation industry that promises to completely transform the way we move around cities and inside cities as well how long before we hover around in all those electrically powered EV tolls. What could the transition to this new era of air travel or advanced air mobility, to be more exact, look like? And how are different cities, regions and countries preparing for that upcoming moment? On today's episode, Chris Fernando and Basil Yap are going to provide some expert perspective on all these matters. Chris Fernando and Basil... Chris and Basil are deeply involved in the American EV toll scene. They are founding partners at HoveCon, a consultancy firm that aims to accelerate the adoption of autonomous aerial transportation technology. And they are also fellow podcasters running together the No U-Turn podcast about innovation in the transportation industry. In addition to these joint endeavors, they are each involved in a number of other projects and initiatives in the field of advanced air mobility. For example, Chris is a principal for aviation and emerging technologies at Quantitative Scientific Solutions, a big data firm, and a member of the Aeronautics Advisor Board at the Florida Institute of Technology, as well as an expert in residence at Advanced Mobility Collective, a nonprofit that promotes the adoption of advanced air mobility technology. And Basil is the president of AeroX, an organization that channels different initiatives aiming at developing an eVTOL technology ecosystem in the state of North Carolina. And he's the co-founder and general partner at AeroX Ventures, an early stage venture fund focusing on advanced air mobility. So get ready for an in-depth review of the many interesting aspects of the advanced air mobility slash eVTOL revolution with our two guests today, Chris and Basil. Hi, Chris. Hey. Basil, how are you? Hi, Mikhail. Good to, good to finally connect. We've been talking about uh, recording this uh, episode for a bit, so good to finally connect. Where, where are you today? Where are you located? Yeah, well, I'm located in a town uh, near Barcelona on the coast, summertime. So the All Plane podcast is moving to, to summer quarters, <laughs> and we're recording it from here. I see. Yeah. So that's why, you know, if you hear the connection at some point breaking a little bit is because it's not the usual connection. Hopefully it's all going to be fine. So (laughs) I really wanted to have this chat with you guys because you are experts in a topic that I've been following quite a lot recently. And I have to say I come from a more, let's say, traditional commercial aviation background. But these last few months, EV tolls are all the rage. Uh, everyone is talking about EV tolls, lots of action in this space, um, urban air mobility. We're seeing lots of SPACs, lots of new projects, new orders. And you, you guys, you both, Chris and Basil, 
you are experts in this field. You uh, are co-hosts of the No U-Turn podcast about emerging technologies in transportation and mobility. You also work in several other projects like HoveCon, AeroX, and some others that we're going to discuss now in this particular field of advanced air mobility. So I would say, first of all, if you could please introduce yourself and then we, we can go on and discuss more in depth all this interesting stuff that is happening in this area. Sure. Again, thanks for the invite to be on your podcast. Very excited to chat about aviation and, and EV tolls. Um, my name is Chris Fernando. Uh, I'm actually based in Raleigh, North Carolina, but uh, today I'm, I'm speaking to you from uh, just outside Washington, D.C. Um, my background is been in aviation for the past uh, almost 20 years. Um, I went to flight school in, in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, I had a dream of becoming a, a commercial pilot, uh, like many in my family. Uh, but somewhere along the way, in the late 90s, I changed my mind about flying and, and went into consulting after graduation. So I, I miss the flying uh, some days, but it's helped me to kind of position myself in the industry. And, and about four or five years ago, I was in the right place at the right time um, with all the unmanned aircraft systems research and, and now advanced air mobility, urban air mobility uh, research that NASA was doing. So I got involved then uh, with some of those projects. And here we are now. Uh, you're calling me an expert, but I don't see myself as an expert. But I, I think just uh, by duration and, and time spent in the space, I know a little bit about this area and I'm happy to share my thoughts. I think he's selling himself a bit short. I think he certainly, yeah, you'll see from the conversation would be, I would define him as as certainly one of the experts in this <laughs> yeah. in this space. Yeah. I'm sure about that, yeah. So uh, my name is um, Basil Yap. And uh, again, like Chris, just excited to, to join you and talk about something that we're really passionate about and um, excited about, and that's aviation and, and the emerging technologies in, in aviation. I'm based out of North Carolina as well. I'm actually based out of a, a city called Winston-Salem. I started in civil engineering and worked around airport development, uh, helping airports expand and, and um, you know maintain the infrastructure. And then had an opportunity to get into the UAS space um, as a state government in North Carolina Department of Transportation and was able to lead a UAS program, you know, how does the state as a as a state government view UAS and how do they how do they you know either regulate it or or help the growth of it? And that's where I really got a lot of exciting experience and uh, started a consulting firm called um, HoveCon. And so through that, we've been able to work with state governments on some different projects, including a really exciting federal project around drone delivery and and also we're able to help with a, a EV toll demonstration so excited to share a little bit about our experience along the way I met Chris I've been fortunate to have that relationship and we were, we both decided to start a podcast as well and, and talk about some of these things but excited to to broaden that and talk with you today mm -hmm. so the, the HoveCon the the firm you are both partners at defines itself as it's a consultancy firm that specializes in promoting the adoption 
of EV toll technologies. Yeah, that's correct. So if I'm a, uh, a state or local government here in the United States, and I'm thinking about this new mode of transportation, I want to understand how that impacts the community, what the use cases are, you know, who's going to be using it? Is it going to be the hospital system, uh, public safety, parcel delivery, or is it going to be, you know, used for infrastructure inspection? And so our role is to kind of come in and help them with both of our respective experiences. Chris has a lot of great experience at the federal level. I have a lot of great experience at the state and local level, and we can share some of those lessons learned and, and prepare them for uh, integrating this into, into their communities. In addition to uh, HOFCON, I've seen on, on your LinkedIn profile, you're also a partner at something called AeroX. Can you tell us about this? Is this also an eVTOL related venture? Yeah. Uh, AeroX is a nonprofit. And so the city of Winston-Salem, which is a, a small, uh, a small, well, medium-sized city in North Carolina. It's famous really... for, uh, for being the, the place where the famous cigarette brand. It's, it's, That's right. It's, right? Yep. So um, it really, a lot of the money associated with the development of the city is around tobacco. In, in North Carolina in general, a lot of the cities are. And so they they kind of transitioned, of course, from all the money around tobacco to looking at other other ways to diversify their economy. And in the past, Piedmont Airlines was founded there. Uh, Piedmont Airlines went on to become uh, you know, a really successful airline, eventually being sold to U.S. Airways. And there are a lot of uh, aviation-focused individuals within the city. And so they saw this new emerging technology, UAS and EVTOLs, and they said, well, how can we really kind of be a, um, a test site or a example city, medium-sized city that would integrate these, again, EVTOL and UAS. And so they started a nonprofit to lead that particular effort. And so the nonprofit could work with the on the commercial and private side, as well as on the government side. And so that's an initiative that we, we've started and Chris helped support that as well. And you, Chris, you are part of something called the Advanced Air Mobility Collective. What is that? Yeah, so so I think Basil is also part of that, but in a different role. Um, so that's an organization, a nonprofit based out of North Carolina that is essentially bringing together many stakeholders, which include consultants, technologists, researchers, subject matter experts, to help be an entity that enables um, research and eventually policy development and implementation of, of all these emerging technologies, not just in aviation, but also surface transportation, wireless technologies, etc. So while we're based in Raleigh, North Carolina, there are nationally focused organization and currently, uh, a lot of the focus of the organization is how we can use some of these new technologies to uh, support disaster management. So think wildfires in, in Denver, Colorado, California, how can you use drones and um, these other technologies to help manage, fight uh, pre-post analyses. And then also, um, there's a focus on healthcare. Mm-hmm. How can we use these new technologies to support uh, healthcare operations. Uh, and I think Basil has some really good examples and use cases that have been in, in the works in, in North Carolina over the past two plus years that, that he can get into. 
Yeah, that would be certainly interesting to, to speak about because there's a lot of hype about the, the world of EV tolls. Um, but I would like to start by the very beginning. How is this industry organized? What different categories of EV tolls are there? We are talking here, there, there are the, the ones that are unmanned. I don't know if it's technically correct to refer to them as drones. There are so many acronyms, and some of them are overlapping, I think. There's manned and unmanned. And then we have acronyms like UAS, UAM, AAM, EVTOL, ESTOL. How you guys think about this industry in terms of categories, groups? Basil, do you want to start and I'll... I'll augment because this is this could be the a, a podcast episode on its own. <laughs> Indeed, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. So um, you know, the beginning of unmanned aircraft is interesting. If we look back at the history, as soon as we were flying aircraft, uh, we think of the Wright brothers, you know, flying right here actually in North Carolina, getting the first heavier than air powered flight. Uh, taking place here. But, you know, it wasn't long after that, that uh, one of the Wright brothers actually partnered on an unmanned aircraft adventure. So as soon as we were started flying uh, manned aircraft, (laughs) we were taking the person um, out of it. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, we've been using unmanned aircraft for a variety of different reasons. During World War II, we were retrofitting existing aircraft to fly them either from the ground or from a trailing aircraft. And then, of course, through the Cold War, there was a lot of development. And really, on the hobbyist side, folks have always been flying what we would call remote control aircraft or RC aircraft. But the the real kind of use of UAS for unmanned is associated with the commercialization that's happened probably in the last um, you know 20 or 15 years, where we began to see companies like DJI and, you know, that was because of uh, advancements in battery technology and motors and, and, you know, computer chips that could help manage the drone to fly. So unmanned aircraft is also associated with the use of military aircraft. And that was predominantly during um, used, well, started in Desert Storm, but we saw a lot of use during the Afghan and Iraq campaigns as well. So yeah, that's kind of where the term UAS, and that's really focused around, I think we traditionally think of it as the smaller you know, they have SUAS, which just means small UAS, and then we have the larger UAS, and that's your traditional roles that you've seen. Large Sorry. has been around the military applications, and, and SUAS has been around these hobbyist drones that, you know, folks are using them to take photos with, but also now we're seeing other use cases. If I may stop you here one second, uh, you, the U stands for unmanned. Yep, that's yeah. right. Air system, UAS. Unmanned aircraft system. System. Yeah, and the system means it's not just the aircraft, it's also the controller, right? Because mm-hmm. you're operating it from the ground now. Yeah. And so the system is the the UAV, mm-hmm. which <laughs> you know is another acronym, <laughs> unmanned yeah. uh, aerial vehicle. Yeah. Um, and the the ground control system. Yeah. And the UCAS. The UCAS. That's another acronym, right? And in the, in the industry, C- more in C- the military C- side. Uh, oh, you mean yeah, CUAS, counter, yeah, CUAS. Yeah. So um, that's a counter UAS. Okay. And that means actually detecting, uh-huh. detecting a drone because we, you know, we obviously we talk a lot about the the good and um, mm-hmm. you know beneficial use cases, but there are UAS being used obviously by bad actors. So then you want to be able to detect uh, mm-hmm. where those those UAS are flying. Say you're at a baseball game or a football game and now someone's flying a drone over the field. You, you want to know who who's flying that drone and how do you make sure that doesn't happen again? And we've seen yeah. a lot of, you know, that 
interest around airports because we were seeing yeah. folks protest with using flying drones near airports. So yeah, in the UK there was a, I think I don't know if it was Heathrow or Gatwick. Gatwick. Uh, yeah, for a, almost a day I think because of some yeah. unidentified object flying around. And uh, UAS must not be mistaken for UAM, which stands for Urban Air Mobility. <laughs> so that would be it's a similar acronym but completely different meaning. Then you have EV. TOL, so it's electric vertical takeoff and landing. And then you have ESTOL, uh, electric shore takeoff and landing, which would be another different type of craft. Uh, just mentioning some of the acronyms that might come up here during the conversation. And then AAM, advanced air mobility. Yeah, yep. that seems to be a term we're seeing. I don't know, Chris, we've seen that, I guess, in the last few years that has become a more popular term. Yeah, so, so I guess the UAM acronym came to be probably four or five years ago, um, NASA actually uh, put out uh, some studies or projects around urban air mobility and just trying to understand uh, what this technology is. They had been researching this for, you know, a good part of the past 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the focus was, or the thought was, this will be an urban technology um, to help uh, reduce congestion and improve kind of urban planning and how people move. But over the past, I think, four or five years, that has evolved as we learned about the various challenges of bringing this technology into an urban environment. Companies like Lilium um, and others started looking at a more regional air mobility. So now they have RAM, which is regional air mobility. And so, and then you have, as, as Basil and both of you mentioned, you have the small US uh, doing package deliveries. Um, and there are smaller US that are also VT, uh, VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing. So I think NASA realized that without uh, having all these different acronyms and, and verbiage to explain similar technologies, they kind of created this advanced air mobility umbrella and all these technologies live under that mm-hmm. umbrella, at least for the time being, till the next change comes along, I'm sure, <laughs> in the next couple of years. A new acronym. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and why, why all this action taking place now? As you mentioned, these type of technologies have been around in a, in a more or less primitive form for quite Quite a while. You mentioned World War Two. I think the elder brother of JFK got killed in World War Two in a, in an accident over England. Yeah, they were yeah. packing um, these bombers full of explosives, and they were just flying them. Um, what they would do is they would take off with the pilots on board, and then the pilots would jump out of the airplanes, you know, with parachutes on, and it would be controlled rem- from another following an aircraft that was following it. And unfortunately, yeah, there was an accident where. Mm-hmm. JFK's brother was killed. There's, there's actually another interesting story. Maybe I'll quickly tell, but sure, yeah, um, go ahead. There's a the term um, drone is really first associated with uh, a radio-controlled plane that was used as a trainer during World War II, and they would fly this trainer around uh, in a field and anti-aircraft gunners, whether they're going to be on a ship or on the ground, would practice trying to shoot down this remote control plane. So you'd have someone that would be flying it from the ground and just, you know, buzzing it around. Well, it was so successful that they wanted to go take photos of the factory. And so they sent a photographer out to the factory and there was a lady working there and he was really impressed by her and said, you know what, you should go. He took quite a few pictures of her and said, he said, you should go to Hollywood and test as a model. And so she did. 
And crazy enough, we know her today as Marilyn Monroe. So mm. Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> before yeah. she was an actress model, she was working in a factory helping put these first drones together. And it actually, there's even another connection because the photographer was from the first motion picture group in the army and the photographer's commanding officer, his name was Ronald Reagan, who would later become governor of California and then obviously president of the United States as well. So interesting connections. Yeah, indeed. Um, actually, there's a book I read recently. I cannot recall the title now from memory, but I will post the link in the, in the show notes. It's about all these technical and scientific experiments and other industrial activities and in, in that the U.S. was doing during World War II. And I think there's a mention to Marilyn Monroe. I think Norma Jane, I think, was her original. Yeah, name. that's right. Um, <laughs> about, there's a mention in the book about her being uh, a worker in one of these factories that was uh, working for, for the war effort. So, yeah, interesting, interesting story. This technology became all the rage in, in the last decade more or less uh, when the the general principles the, the general ideas were already there for quite some time yeah so i think the the catalyst was um you know again as we've dealt with a lot of congestion on the on the surface and companies like uber lyft and others have been trying to kind of find that edge in the market uber elevate was formed um and they put out a white paper around this kind of idea that already existed, but they were kind of, they were kind of the first to start, you know, um, exploring this technology as a potential air taxi type of um, solution. But I would say that uh, it's a combination of things, in my opinion. I think uh, the advances in in battery electric uh, and battery technologies, um, there's still a long, long way to go. But um, that that was one of the reasons that I think companies like Uber and others have started looking at um, this technology over the past several years. I think the, just computing technology and the ability to kind of emergence of artificial intelligence um, to potentially um, have this autonomous technology in the in the airspace. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's been a lot of uh, venture capital and investment from non-aviation entities. I mean, we know traditionally Airbus and Boeing, and, and there have been a handful of companies that have really le- led the R&D. But now you're seeing, you know, companies like Google, Apple, and, and others, and their founders or former founders bring their engineering and software background. So there are obviously positives um, in in my opinion, of them coming into this space, as 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 we know, in, in traditional and protective of of you know the space in a way, um, you have to have these certain criteria to, to enter the space. But now you're seeing you know all sorts of people in this space. So there are pros and cons to that. So I, I think it's a, it's not just one reason. I think. Um, NASA taking the leadership in this space also helped. And I think kind of the globalization of, of the world economy, and you see companies like Ehang and others in, in Asia and, and Lilium in Germany, uh, Joby uh, over here. And I think there are probably 200 plus aircraft OEMs um, or concepts at least in, in the mix. So at least that's my take on, on kind of why over the past five years, EV tolls have kind of 
broken into the space. And I'll end by saying I expect, I think there's a place for this. I, I think as an aviation person, um, geek, whatever you want to call me, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I do think that, that this will come to fruition. I think the the timeline will be longer than people think. And I think the 200 plus aircraft concepts will come down to probably, you know, a handful uh, mm-hmm. as they consolidate and figure things out. Uh, yeah. in different countries and regions. Yeah, I got a bit the feeling that must have been something like this in the first couple of decades of the 20th century when you had all these people that were starting aircraft companies just out of nowhere. Um, same with car companies, like car makers, aircraft makers. If you had um, a bit of a creative guy, entrepreneurial guy, you could start yeah, a car maker or an aircraft maker with relatively little capital and test new ideas. And then all of those were, were basically ended up being like the, the two or three we have today. So, <laughs> right. so I, I guess, uh, yeah, maybe there's a parallel there. The big question is what's going to be the final structure of this industry. And here I wanted to ask you about the ecosystem. What does it take to have a successful eVTOL ecosystem or a successful advanced air mobility ecosystem? I mean, you guys have been working in North Carolina with people there. You have seen things from the from multiple sides. So what would be your, your view on this? And where, where do all the other players fit into this picture, like the airports, the the industrial supply chains, the regulators? Yeah, there's, that's a great question. There, it's, it's certainly a lot of players to ensure that this, um, this concept and ecosystem is going to thrive. You know, a lot of the conversations have started around the movement of passengers and with EV tolls. So Chris mentioned Uber having a strong interest in how to move passengers within urban areas. So that's one kind of if we just take that use case as an example, I think we can talk through. So um, for one, you're going to need, you know, you starting at the aircraft, we have the aircraft regulators uh, and we need to ensure that we can have certified aircraft that fly in our, in the airspace above us. And so the civil aviation authorities of obviously each respective country is going to need to um, have some type of certification and oversight process. And so in, in the U S of course, that's, the FAA or the Federal Aviation Administration. And right now we have multiple uh, EV tolls going through a certification process. And of course, it's totally new, <laughs> totally new to them. Um, if we're going to be using an electrical system, um, you know, that it's, it doesn't act like a helicopter, um, it, but it's, it's battery powered and it's going to fly in the same airspace as our traditional aviation. There's a lot to figure out and we don't have an, a certified aircraft yet. We're hoping maybe the next year or two years we'll have a certified aircraft, uh, which includes a production production certification so they can start producing them and selling them. So that regulator around the aircraft certification, as well as a regulator of the airspace. So how do we integrate um, this EV tolls into our existing air traffic control system? And then is there a localized air traffic control systems like within a city, whether that's LA or a or in New York, right? If we have multiple um, EV tolls flying around, they need to talk to each other. So that's the kind of the role of the, the Civil Aviation Authority. Um, and then at uh, at a local level, we're going to, of course, have the folks that are going to own um, where the aircraft take off and land and ensure that they're connected to the rest of the transportation systems within that area. So you're going to want to have what we would call a vertiport 
which is um, like a helipad. <laughs> you think of a traditional helicopter as a vertiports where EV tolls are going to land um, and be recharged and take passengers and offload passengers. And those need to be near, you know, obviously areas of interest, whether that's near stadiums or, or other shopping areas or, or office areas or connected to the next mode of transportation, whether that's um, micro-mobility like scooters or bikes, uh, pedestrian walkways or ride sharing, or even, um, you know, rail, uh, light rail or metro. So, um, you know, traditionally that's a role of like a, a local government that helps with that, but there's been talk about even that being a, a private or commercial entity that would own that vertiport. Um, and so that's another important segment of of this. And then we have the operators, the folks that are actually going to be operating these, uh, obviously for a profit. So that's could be, um, you know, an Uber or it could also be an American Airlines or another company that we haven't heard of that would actually be operating this, hiring the pilots in the beginning, um, but also uh, having the software that would ensure folks can buy tickets and, and get on there and, and manage the operations. Yeah. So those are three I mentioned there, the regulator, right? The, the folks that are going to own the infrastructure um, and then uh, the operator. I know there's more, so maybe I'll throw it over to Chris. Yeah. Th thanks, Basil. So, so there are tons of challenges in getting some of these things literally and figuratively off the ground. Um, and so on the air taxi side, two of the markets that have been talked about, at length is airport shuttle. So uh, that would be an easy, easier connection using existing potential infrastructure like heliports, convert them to vertiports. There are challenges with that. Uh, and then take them to an airport from a downtown environment, um, seeing that the airport also has existing infrastructure that can be leveraged. So the airport shuttle market seemed like an early market that could be uh, that could come to fruition once these aircraft are certified and, and, and in operation. And then there's Air Metro, which is a little more of a scheduled service that has also been discussed. But that was probably a couple of years ago. And of course, I think that's still a focus of many of the OEMs and, and um, ecosystem. But I think more recently, um, everyone in the industry is realizing that operating these things, converting heliports, building infrastructure, a huge amount of investment, taxpayer money um, as well, and absorbing huge risk from state and local entities will have to take place. So I think over the past couple of years, the, the markets that are being looked at have, have become more kind of humanitarian life-saving type markets like healthcare, be used for healthcare or, or unmanned systems, how can EV tolls be used for healthcare? Because there is a, that'll be an easier pathway potentially for public acceptance of this aircraft because I cannot imagine people will be too happy to have these aircraft landing in people's backyards, flying amongst buildings, weather and noise and and other things that have to be overcome so mm -hmm. just to yeah. kind of wrap this piece up i think the markets have changed from moving people to more moving cargo uh, air ambulance uh, healthcare deliveries so you're going to see this kind of shift happen and then probably air taxi come back once the the technology is for now uh, that was actually one of the things i had here in my notes to ask you is 
what's going to come first, if passengers or cargo, uh, and uh, how you see these these two markets evolving. Uh, we have seen a couple of big deals in uh, the cargo market in the last week in the electric aircraft space, and also in in a recent podcast in the um, Aftalk podcast. Uh, a few days ago, they had as a guest the editorial director of evtoll.com, Elon Head, and they were talking about the restrictions that might be in place, at least in the, in the early stages where people are not used to this type of aircraft. People might object to all this craft moving overhead and, and landing in, in people's backyards and stuff like that. So that might be restricting a little bit the, the use cases. How many of these things are going to be flying overhead at any one time? That's, that's a big thing. I don't know. I, I don't think people are yet psychologically prepared to see many things buzzing overhead all the time. What do you think? To me, noise, I think, to a certain extent, technology will solve for it. But it all depends on how many aircraft are in the sky. Uh, noise is not linear. It's logarithmic. So, you know, noise is going to increase as, as you add aircraft, but it can also be offset by how you design your cities and, and what the weather is and, and different other, other variables. So I think visual pollution is something that people are not, not thinking about. If you have a lot of these aircraft flying in the sky at low altitude, ruin your views in, in parks or state parks or people just trying to relax. Um, so that's something that people don't think about really at this stage. Um, and also, I think there are concerns that this technology is being developed for the rich and famous. And, and the only people who will have access to this is, um, you know, the 1% of the 1%. And so, you know, why should taxpayers invest taxpayer money and provide infrastructure in urban areas and you know other more rural areas if the only people who are going to use them and access them are the rich and famous so i think to me that's that's a bigger problem because i think there are a lot of companies who say the right things who are saying this technology will be accessible to all but in reality um we know that uh, you know there's that, that is not a priority at this time. And so one of the things that we like to focus on, not just on our podcast, but the work we do, is to make people, you know, not just aware, but work through these challenges to make sure that accessibility and equity are a focus of, of some of these companies and, and potential uh, operators. I do think if I were to pick one challenge outside of the public social acceptance, which I 100% agree with you, that will be a problem. I think weather, weather will be the biggest challenge to overcome. Mm -hmm. A lot of these aircraft don't have a AC. So imagine getting into these aircraft in, in Miami or Arizona, or the battery life in Alaska or somewhere where it's really cold. Um, and the wind, wind patterns changing in, in New York City and Chicago. So and then this could kind of reduce the operational window, right, on a daily basis. So I think whether if I were to pick one challenge that many, many companies will have, if not all, unless it's a very specific geographic location, will be, will be weather. And that's what mm -hmm. will drive kind of the use cases as well. 
the one thing I haven't thought much about the weather, but the the one thing that I am thinking about is all the air traffic control that that you mentioned earlier. Because obviously, if you have all these things flying, at some point one of them is going to fall down from the sky, <laughs> um, and that might be a big thing, right? So just as as the beginning when there were cars at the beginning of the 20th century, there were no traffic lights, there were no no indications, there were no zebra crossings, stuff like that. You could just uh, drive wherever you wanted, wherever you could physically, because obviously there were not as many roads. But in this case, I guess at some point in congested areas, there will have to be some new ways to organize all this traffic, because otherwise it's going to be a bit of a chaos overhead. And, and people then would complain. And obviously that, that's a safety risk for people on the ground as well. I don't know. One of the use cases I see promising is uh, in the regional space. Um, in places like remote communities, where well, I see a, a potential use, but the, these remote communities used to, normally they are located in places with um, some extreme weather, like Alaska or, or northern Scandinavia, places like that. If the manufacturers deliver on the costs, on the operating costs they promise, they could be an interesting alternative to, to land transport. I don't know, that, that regional case that could, be, could be an interesting thing to see how it evolves. And that's where I think, that's where I think um, we mentioned an acronym E-STOL, yeah, which is uh, electric short takeoff or landing. I think that's really a place, you know, the range of an E-STOL is going to be much further than an EV-TOL. Mm-hmm. In it, you know, so if there's a if there's a fixed wing capacity that mm-hmm. it transitions, we know all your energy is spent. You know, there's a lot more energy being spent in a hover, and so. Yeah. The quicker you can transition into fixed wing flight, which is be the most efficient um, flight for electric motors, mm-hmm. well, it's just going to be the most efficient. Then uh, you'll see the greatest ranges. So yeah, I do think there's some exciting work by folks like Electra and others that have electric powered um, aircraft eStole, and they they can take off and land um, shorter distances because they're you know they're essentially pushing the air over the by the by the prop versus it flying and going through the air so it's just able has lower stall speeds and and can take off Mm -hmm. uh, quicker so i think there's yeah tremendous potential there in the regional market and basil do you do you want to touch on some of the drone deliveries that have been going on in north carolina because i really think that those packaged medical applications can be, you know, expanded and extended into these rural rural environments to to provide by using e-stalls and e-v-tolls, not just in Alaska and places like that, but even in places like North Carolina, where there are quite large rural areas. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about about the North Carolina experience. Because um, it, usually when people talk about these EV tolls, people think about super huge cities like New York, Chicago, Dubai. But what about communities of a, of a smaller size? Obviously, there are, there are some uh, decently sized cities in North Carolina, but a much smaller scale. Like, What's your experience and what sort of use cases are you working on in, in the North Carolina case? Yeah, great question and, and great observation. We obviously hear a lot about LA and New York and other areas. And it's because, you know, with these EV tolls for passenger delivery, they need um, they need a lot of turnover. They need a lot of flights uh, to be able to kind of recover the cost. But 
those cities also come with a lot of a lot of restrictions and a lot more bureaucracy in in the government right to work through so they're not in i guess in my opinion the best places to test these new technologies out you really you need kind of smaller areas to prove out the concept and then you can scale it scale it to large areas and so that's kind of been our focus in north carolina around how do we integrate starting with with drones or uas and then now EV tolls or e-stall aircraft. And one of the early use cases, uh, which we focused on was medical package delivery. And, you know, Amazon has been talking about package delivery since the early 2000s, but the first operation, the first commercial drone delivery operation um, under, under a section, what we call part 135, is it was the real true drone delivery uh, regulations that are in place um, was for a medical was for medical use case. And, and so I'll mention a couple of these use cases we have in North Carolina and, and then kind of the potential for EV tolls. Our, our healthcare system in the US kind of becoming more centralized. And so the rural areas of our, of our state, folks are driving into kind of these uh, central locations or large urban areas for um, their healthcare needs, including specialty doctors, whether it's oncology for cancer or, or other things. And the idea was to use drones to deliver critical supplies within that network. And so the first kind of uh, step in that direction was delivering supplies within a campus, within a hospital campus. And so in Raleigh, we're working with a company or with a um, healthcare system, Wake Med, and they are delivering um, blood specimens. So you're, you know, you get your blood drawn at a clinic and then they put it on a drone and it flies to a central location at the hospital and that lab tests the blood and then it gives you re the results. And so when you duplicate that over an entire network, you know, all of those outlying clinics can now be using drones to fly the blood in and the turnaround for the testing is quicker because traditionally it takes someone in a van to drive to all those different locations, pick the blood up and then they drop it all off at once and maybe they'll do that twice a day. But now you can get your results much quicker and that helps. And then on, you know, flying from the central location, the hospital or the pharmacy, you can put, um, you know, prescription drugs or other critical supplies uh, to fly it out to those outlying clinics. You know, it could be antivenom for a snake bite or it could just be a specialty medicine uh, required. And that's similar to what we're doing with another healthcare system, Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem. Um, they're, they're actually mixing an infusion for, uh, for cancer patients at their pharmacy, and then they're putting it on a drone and flying it out to a, um, an infusion center uh, where it's then given to the patient. Um, and then another company, Zipline, is working with Novant, uh, delivering um, critical supplies like PPE in response to COVID. And another company delivering uh, vaccines, uh, Merck, and uh, they're the pharmaceutical company uses Valancey. So we're, we're fortunate to have all of those operations in North Carolina, but you know, in those cases, we're just delivering small items like blood specimens and, um, and you know, pharmaceutical items as well as PPE. But think about now if we could put a doctor on one of these. And so you could fly a doctor out to a community, a rural community, and they could meet with uh, individuals in that area, or they could fly out for a surgery. Um, you know, go to a surgical center and they're an expert uh, and they could be centrally located. And that's where we see a lot of potential with EV tolls. Um, we've also looked at, 
you know, flying patients from those rural areas um, to, to the hospital, we found out that a lot of the helicopter medevac flights that take place are between hospitals or hospital transfers. So someone comes into a hospital in a rural area and they might not have enough beds or they don't have a specialty doctor to take care of that individual or they don't have the equipment for that particular diagnosis. They put them on a helicopter and they fly them to, um, you know, a, a main hospital. And I think the numbers are around like 70% of the folks that are flown in on a, on a medevac helicopter um, actually walk out the same day. And so that's just, you know, pretty amazing. So the medical use case is really interesting. Last thing I'll, I'll mention is because the communities can get behind, you know, using drones and EB tolls for that reason. It's kind of like why we pull to the side of the road when we see an ambulance go down, right? We, we know that that could be us in that EB toll in the future. Um, and we know it's, it's potentially saving someone's life. And that's a little bit, you know, easier to get folks behind versus, you know, delivering goods or pizzas <laughs> or something else to your neighbors or, or to your front step. Yeah. And so we found a lot of, yeah, a lot of traction there. What about the uh, traffic control issues that we were mentioning earlier? How are the local state authority? I, mean, I don't know if they have any authority on that, but are you working on that also at the state level uh, in, in these trials you're doing there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and so <laughs> you mentioned, do the state and local have a role and they do have a role, but there's a lot of questions about, you know, who manages low altitude airspace and, and we could have a whole podcast. I mean, there's been books written about this. Um, <laughs> traditionally, the, the Federal Aviation Administration manages all of the airspace that, uh, that we fly in. But now, you know, we're flying at such low altitudes with drones. A lot of these um, concepts are coming into question. And so the management right now of it is in close coordination with um, the FAA, which also oversees the air traffic control into, in and out of airports. And so the routes, the specific routes are being approved by the Federal Aviation Administration. And then in some cases, we'll share through uh, a notice to airmen, just so others that are flying in that area are aware that these uh, flights are taking place. But we do a study of the airspace, so we ensure that you know we're not on the approach path for any of the airports, and we're staying clear of helipads. Um, in the case of the of the hospitals, they they of course have helipads for medevac helicopters to come in and land, and so we coordinate with um, with the um, scheduler for those helicopter flights, and we can ensure that you know if a helicopter comes in while they're flying a drone, we can either land the drone or or if a helicopter's inbound, we just don't take the drone off. So at a very small scale, we're looking at, you know, we're managing that. But the state of North Carolina has put together a concept of operation to help manage those throughout the entire state through a network of sensors. And we're seeing other states do this too. Um, but at the end of the day, just like our roads or our airports or our rail corridors, we just need to have a way that you can recover um, the cost of operating that infrastructure and so the idea around fees for that use is not very popular, but, you know, we have airport landing fees, we have fuel tax, we have other ways that we, um, you know, fund our infrastructure. So those are some of the difficult conversations we're going to have to have in the future. Uh, I'll just add, Mikhail, the other yeah, yeah. states that are outside of North Carolina are looking at, you know, doing some of this testing and evaluation that, that is required through the development of these corridors. So, so New York has a corridor of 50 miles that include uh, Syracuse Airport, uh, the Griffiths test site, and, 
some universities, hospitals, uh, DOD entities. Ohio, the state of Ohio has a corridor that is focused on, I think, Route 33 uh, to do these types of um, research uh, in partnership with the Air Force. Uh, North Dakota has a 50-mile corridor. So we're seeing different states um, develop or, or create these spaces so that we can actually do the research and the testing um, and, and deliveries to really understand how we can create that bigger system that, that, that Basil was talking about. And what about this network of sensors that you mentioned? How does it work? Are those on, are located on the ground, I guess, in, in specific areas? But yeah. how do they work in, 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 in practical terms? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we have radar already. Typically, they're located at our airports or we have what's called in-route radar so that anytime, you know, folks are flying within our national airspace, we have visibility of them. Of course, that's only at certain altitudes. And that's, I guess, the issue is we don't have good visibility at low, low levels just because the way the radars work, you know, they're not always, they're not pointing down. Um, it, and so those sensors that we're looking at would be, um, you know, radar that would face down uh, or to the horizon and get a better visibility of, of low altitudes. And you would want to place those. There's been concepts and ideas of placing those on cell towers um, or tall buildings. And so when we look at uh, Winston-Salem, we've located a couple tall buildings that we can put these sensors on and face them in the directions that we're interested. And that's primarily used to pick up where um, what we'd call non-cooperative aircraft are flying. So in the U.S., you can actually get in, you know, a Piper Cub aircraft that may or may not have an electrical system. You can fly around in an airspace designated as Class G. It's called uncontrolled. And you don't have to talk to anybody as long as you can see out, you know, see out the window and make sure you don't run into the ground or into anyone else. Um, and then we have you know, other folks that are flying at low altitudes like helicopter operators looking at maybe power lines or, or medevac or heli um, public safety for law enforcement or firefighting. Um, and so that's the idea of, this, of that surveillance sensor. And then you'd have sensors, you know, to, to, for folks to pick up like a transponder or the future uh, kind of transponder for drones, which is called remote ID. Um, and and then the sensors for our communication uh, links to ensure that there's a strong communication link between the ground station and the EV tolls or, or UAS flying in that airspace. So that's the network and it's all kind of called a UTM or, and there's another acronym for you, unmanned traffic management. So a UTM system. Mm -hmm. uh, you've worked a lot with airports. What do airports need to do in order to be able to integrate with all these new potentially new networks we have seen airlines like uh, united and others investing in this space to connect with their longer haul air operations how do you see this integrating all together uh, the the airports the the airlines that fly the traditional aircraft plus the ev tolls that might do transfers to and from the airport and maybe some other use cases. What, what does an airport need to do? What sort of infrastructure needs the airport need to have? What sort of investments and how all these, all these different 
parts and pieces can, can work together. Also, the level of terminals. If you get people moving from arriving in an eVTOL and then transferring to a to an, uh, right. an A320 mm-hmm. and a 737, for example. What's, uh, you know, what's, what's the state of the art thinking in this, in this area? Yeah, so, so I can start here. Um, on the, I'll rattle off a bunch of things and then, you know, uh, Basil can chime in. Uh, security is going to be a big deal. I think the, the, the last use case or process you described, you know, where is TSA, for example, you know, how will they be implemented? Uh, will it be just technology or will there be people? How are people going to be checked? Where will they be checked? So I think security um, at airports for, you know, mobility solutions like this will be huge. And as you know, you know, parking has always been one of the largest, if not the largest revenue generator for most airports. And if people stop driving and parking, you know, um, how is that infrastructure going to be converted and used? So I think, you know, it's not easy to convert these these infrastructure. And if airports are looking to build new infrastructure, they need to start thinking about how to future-proof some of these infrastructures so that they can be used for or become a Vodiport. And that means charging these aircraft rapidly. So having almost a separate grid or the use of microgrids to, you know, charge up these aircraft. And this applies to, you know, autonomous vehicles on the ground as well. So it'll be a combination of a vertiport um, for aircraft and then something on the ground as well. So to me, on, on the infrastructure side, there are a lot of things that have to be addressed. Uh, the airspace side actually kind of, even though it exists, I think for the most part, uh, can be solved in the near term as long as the scale is not not huge in terms of operations. But I think having to figure out where these aircraft actually land, whether they land air side or land side, will there be another shuttle to take them from the eVTOL to the airport, actually save time or will it actually increase time uh, of the total trip? And those things kind of come to mind. And then also, you know, the, the how people intend to use them. I mean, we've not really touched on the autonomous uh, side of things or when these things will become autonomous. We expect initial operation to have a pilot, some sort of pilot, maybe not a pilot in the traditional sense, but a, but a, somewhat of an operator who, who kind of manages the aircraft, kind of supports any type of emergency. But to me, the infrastructure piece at the airport side will have to be solved sooner rather than later because it's very difficult to plan for, you know, as you know, airports do master plans and they go out 15, 20 years and then someone wants a EV, uh, Vodiport put in the next two or three years. It's very hard to, from a funding standpoint, uh, project standpoint, to integrate. So, um, yeah. I don't know, Basil, what, what do you think? You, you really did a great job covering a lot of the elements that we'd look at we're you know we're fortunate to be working with airports right now um, on the master planning effort and, and other efforts to integrate both UAS and EV tolls into their operations and the other kind of element I'll mention is the the users so if you're a like hypothetically a, a company like parcel delivery company like UPS or DHL or FedEx or even Amazon in the future, you may be flying things on in on a traditional aircraft and then from the airport using an eVTOL or an eStOL to fly to your distribution center for, you know, maybe particularly critical items that are need to be delivered within 12 hours or even quicker. 
And so we're going to see a lot of the use cases driven by some of these big operators that already are helping with revenue on airports. Sorry, I, one question I, I have here is, in quantitative terms, how big could this be? Because I'm thinking, uh, and particularly when thinking about passenger transport, for example, um, the cargo, obviously, there, there are some cargos that are more valuable than others. But when you're thinking passengers, I'm guessing if airlines want to integrate this into their into their operations, it would need to be for the for the highest premium passengers, at least in large airports, because mm-hmm. after all, even large airport has a, a limited amount of airspace that can be used, but those craft are normally quite small. So how many of those craft, even if you are constantly operating them 24-7, how many people is that? I guess in a small regional airport, like as we were saying in Alaska, for example, you can get a significant portion of the passengers connecting this way, but at a JFK or Newark or O'Hare or some, some large airport, even if you are operating thousands of these, it's going to just be a fraction of the, of the amount of people that go through the airport in any given day. Which is why I don't think this, this technology will reduce congestion on the streets, but that's, that's for another, another episode. Hmm. Yeah. So if we think about how folks get to the airport, um, you know, right now, so off, often they're, being driven to the airport, right? They could, it might be a ride share, um, you know, Uber, Lyft, or some other uh, form of, of transportation dropping them off. And it's typically one or two people in that vehicle. And so now just you would take a portion of, of those folks arriving in those vehicles. And it, again, EV tolls for, <laughs> could be two to four uh, passengers mm-hmm. um, arriving at a time. So I think that yeah, the demand will be driven by, like you said, the premium, probably the premium um, ticket holders if the airline is going to incorporate it in. And this is not anything, this is not a new concept. Um, you know, you used to be able to buy an airline ticket to fly out of any of the New York airports. And there was uh, a part of the ticket was that you would get a helicopter ride from downtown New York to the airport. So mm-hmm. this is a similar concept that potentially could be applied to EV tolls as well. In those cases, you, you also would need a, a clear delimitation of the airspace and create some sort of corridor for, for people to, like a constant line of EV tolls, dropping people off, picking up other people, something like the, the taxi line you get outside of airports, something like that. There have been some te- modeling. NASA did some modeling uh, out at, I think it was Dallas-Fort Worth. Correct me, Chris, if I'm incorrect, but with uh, I think it was with Uber. I think some of that data is public where yep. they were trying to figure out exactly what you're asking. You know, how do we coordinate getting EV tolls between the two main runways? And uh, what does that interaction with air traffic control look like? And what was the result? Did they come up with some ideas? Well, I believe they came up with a, a system in place that could help you know, manage the traffic based on the location of their flights and how they would deconflict with um, with the with the parallel runways. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they were flying in kind of right over where the the main traffic was coming in and minimized crossing over runways or being any approach paths. And where do you see this technology taking off? literally <laughs> sooner in the US or worldwide i mean uh, we have seen some some communities some some jurisdictions seem to be more keen on experimenting and and advancing in this yep. direction where do you see this happening first well i think the first flights um will well 
I, I don't think, unfortunately, that the U.S. will be the first to to market um, just because of the regulatory environment. It, the standard and the bar is, is to, to achieve is quite high, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think the U.S. is becoming the proving ground and the test bed um, for a lot of these OEMs to operate, um, manufacture, and then operate these aircraft in other countries. So I think China uh, uh, will likely be uh, first to market with Ehang. I think the Middle East is also likely uh, one of the first regions to operate these. Uh, you know, Dubai is looking at several uh, different applications of not just eVTOLs, but also the smaller drones by public safety entities like the police, but also to move passengers and cargo. So I think if I were to pick two uh, early entrants in terms of regions, it's probably those two. I think there's a, quite a bit of application in, in the continent of Africa um, that could be um, leveraged and unlocked. And then island communities like connecting different islands in the Caribbean um, and Latin America or Hawaii, where there are archipelagos of islands. And even in Southeast Asia, connecting you know, Singapore, Malaysia, the islands in the Indonesia. I think those to me will likely be the markets that not only can operate, but also scale uh, much faster than, than in the US. And I always kind of equate uh, um, how cell phones you know, went from landlines to, to actually having cell phones. And, and many of the countries that were able to adopt that technology were countries in the developing part of the world. And it, it came to places like the US and, and some communities much later because we had a much more mature infrastructure, whereas yeah. you're in a village and you go from no phone to having an iPhone 10. Yeah. So I think the similar thing will happen with, with, um, with um, this technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprised to learn in the latest press release announcing an, a deal by Eve, the Embraer eVTOL arm, that was saying that six out of the 10 largest helicopter, urban helicopter markets in the world are in Latin America. Surprised to, to learn that. I knew that Sao Paulo and Rio Janeiro, for example, were big markets, but it, it's, it's apparently a, a whole regional thing. Colombia, there's a lot of um, congestion. And, and I think for them, a rural trip um, and this is based on conversations we've had with uh, folks like uh, our own vehicles in, in Colombia, their rural trip is considered to be like one to three miles. And it takes them like an hour and a half to go that distance on the ground. Yeah. So if, if that is the distance you have to travel and you can develop the infrastructure, that's, that's going to save not just time, but you know, uh, money and, and, and yeah. make things, especially in emergencies, getting police. And, and public safety. So I think that is kind of one of the primary reasons that, that the rural in the U.S. is much longer distances, whereas in those communities, rural is, is, is a very short distance, and that could be a really good market for entry, but also to scale. Mm-hmm. So um, just to, to wrap it up, um, what do you see, apart from the, the regions, in terms of technology and development, um, where, what do you see happening next, the next, let's say, three to five years in this field? Are we uh, finally going to have the, the quote-unquote flying taxis that we've been promised for so long? <laughs> or that's going to be 
restricted for now to the drone delivery of parcels and, and medical supplies and the like? I think, yes, there will be. I think you're going to see Joby and others um, operating in the next two to three years. But I think it will be a taxi where you're moving people um, at scale. We are probably 10 plus years away from that. But I do see these aircraft being used by you know people who can afford them um, in, in the short term, but then also for cargo and healthcare applications. So I, I'm optimistic, uh, very optimistic that this technology will will uh, come to fruition over the next two, three, two, three years, maybe five years. But scaling, we're probably 15, 20 years, 10 to, 10 to 20 years out uh, from that, in my opinion. And Basil, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I'm thinking along the same lines as you. You know, we got to get aircraft certified, um, like I mentioned earlier. So getting an EV toll certified just helps someone like an F, you know, FA or regulators be comfortable with that process. Cause you work, you work a lot out when you get an aircraft certified, um, when it comes to processes. So we got to get the first one through that hurdle and then we'll see more. And, uh, I do think we'll see the use cases around cargo and, um, and, you know, within cargo could be a subset of medical delivery, medical package delivery, as some of the use cases, first use cases we see, see, you know, UPS obviously made an investment in purchasing some beta aircraft. We've seen United Therapeutics as well, uh, working with beta aircraft around their healthcare support. Um, you know, there's some use cases we haven't, you know, really touched on. I, I can see, um, you know, EV tolls flying and moving cargo either out to wind farms or out to the platforms, oil platforms in the Gulf. Um, I think there's a lot of use cases that minimize the impact uh, while we build hours on these platforms and then, you know, eventually put folks on them. I do think the military, we're seeing a lot of investment by the military. And so I think the military will be flying air taxi-like aircraft in the next uh, two to three years as well. And so that will learn a lot Great from point. them as well. Great point interesting panorama where lots of things are happening uh, so that people can keep up to date with everything that's going on in this space. Which social media channels, websites, podcasts would you direct them to? What's the uh, address of your podcast and the other projects you are active in at the moment? Sure. Well, uh, Chris and I are both part of the, the No U-Turn podcast. You can look that up on you know Spotify or, or whoever you use Pandora for your podcast uh, needs. And No U-Turn again is focused kind of on broader broader technology um, and emerging technologies around transportation. Uh, we also you also mentioned our uh, the nonprofit uh, AeroX. That's ncaerox.com. N-C-A-E-R ox.com and then uh, of course our consulting firm hovcon h-o-v-e-c-o-n.com uh, are some are some places to start chris what are your recommendations for kind of all things am or uam well the dawn of drones um by um don zoldi who is a um, expert in the legal and regulatory front um on, on unmanned systems uh, would be a good one. I think that's the name of um, her podcast that is attracting a lot of uh, speakers uh, in in the in our ecosystem. But there are not too many. Uh, one of the reasons we started ours was there were not too many 
podcasts that we were aware of. Um, I'm sure there are a few that we are not aware of that kind of focused on kind of emerging trends and technologies. So shout out to our co-host, Ravi Singh. Uh, don't want to forget him. Uh, he's part of the, uh, the three, you know, three hosts. Um, but um, so those are kind of the two that I'm aware of ours. And, and then of course, yours all plain um, don't, Dawn of Drones or Drones of Dawn. I, I'm gonna have to <laughs> check. I'll, I'll, I'll check it that. out and uh, I will. I will add links to all these resources in the show notes so that people, great people can follow you and. And then up. you mentioned EVTOL, um, the the organization that puts out a lot of articles. Yeah. Um, also, um, the Vertical Flight Society. Mm-hmm. They don't have a podcast, but they they have a lot of resources available um for on this topic area uh, for the community um at, for free in at times but also if you're willing to become a member then they have more more information mm-hmm. indeed yeah very well it's been a very interesting chat i'll definitely keep an eye on all these projects you you guys involved in and it would be great to have you back on the show at some point in the future and and see how things have been moving along and, and where are we in this EV toll revolution that is unfolding? As we yeah, talk? no. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, we we want to reciprocate and have you on as well. Uh, Season two for us starts in a few weeks, a couple of weeks. So we'd love to bring you, bring you on and, and talk about um, Europe and things happening in, in Spain and, and the, the writing you do, because I know that's a focus area as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you so much for for the invitation. Let's uh, let's talk about when that can happen. But in the meantime, thank you very much. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you are using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon.